Well, good evening and welcome to the General Aviation Awards live webinar, where you'll soon be introduced to this year's GA Award winners. I'm Phil Boyer, who in a previous life was the president of the Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association that most of you know as AOPA. And I'm now living in retirement in an air park in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm delighted to be your host for this evening. You're gonna learn some things about these fine people, just as I have, who have won these prestigious awards. And we're going to get some of their philosophies, insights, and safety tips from their learned and individual pr perspectives. I'm sure you'll enjoy their presentations. And at the end of the presentation, you'll be able to apply for WINGS credit. When the seminar is over, you'll see a screen that looks something like this. And on the right side, you'll spot something that says WINGS or AMT credit. And because of your participation tonight, you'll be able to get knowledge credits for your WINGS development. So when you click on the WINGS credit application, it will take you to the FAA.gov website. You'll look at a review, take a mastery quiz, and soon thereafter, you'll be awarded the appropriate WINGS credit or AMT credit. The General Aviation Awards is nothing new. It's been around since the 1960s. The mission of the awards program is to recognize outstanding individuals in their fields of flight instruction, aviation maintenance, and general aviation safety. The awards highlight the important leadership roles these individuals play in promoting aviation safety, education, and professionalism. It's a cooperative effort between the industry and the FAA. Winners are chosen locally at the FISDO level, then reviewed and selected at the regional level, and finally the top three are selected at the national level each year. The national honorees receive recognition not only tonight on this webinar, and historically at AirVenture in Oshkosh, but due to its cancellation, our award winners will be honored at a future major aviation event. So it's my pleasure to introduce you to this year's GA Award winners. They are Catherine Cavaniero, Certificated Flight Instructor of the Year, Dennis Walter, Aviation Maintenance Technician of the Year, and Gary Brousset, the FAA Safety Team Representative of the Year. My hearty personal congratulations to all three of you. Let me begin with Catherine, the CFI of the Year. And that's something, Catherine, I've always wanted to do, but never had the time or ability to do it. And it's still on my bucket list. So how did you get into all this in the first place? Okay, well, first of all, thank you so much, Phil, uh, for this. Uh, I got a late start in aviation. I grew up in California and uh, just would lie on the grass and watch the planes coming in at Moffett Field and was just always gobsmacked by them. And uh, But it, it was not uh, in the cards when I lived in California. I had an interest in mathematics and I did a math degree at Santa Clara University and then went to Illinois Urbana-Champaign for my PhD in mathematics, and it still wasn't uh, in the cards for me. But I did notice that on my when I was looking for my first job out of graduate school, that uh, Sewanee, the University of the South, had its own airport. And it, in fact, to this day, it's the only liberal arts college in the country that I've ever found that owns its own airport. 
So I filed that away and I worked hard uh, and earned tenure in May of 99. So May 5th, I got tenure. May 19th, I had my first son and I did what anybody else would do. I walked right out to the airport and I signed up for flying lessons. So uh, I got a bit of a late start. I was 34 when I took my first uh, flying lesson. Uh, but I also met Bill Kirshner out there. And you all may know Bill Kirshner from uh, his books. He taught mm -hmm. generations to fly. He was also an aerobatic instructor out there. And he's the one who encouraged me to combine my love of mathematics and aviation. And that endeavor made me really fall in love with each one of those subjects even more. And uh, let's see, so I taught with Bill uh, aerobatics for the last few years of his life. And in January of 2007, unfortunately, he passed away and people kept calling. And here I am uh, as an aerobatic instructor uh, since then. Now you're instructing now. How has the, the current COVID crisis affected flight instruction from your standpoint? Well, it's interesting. I haven't done uh, recent flight instruction in the last month or two, uh, but I'm giving. I'm also an examiner for the Nashville FISDO, and I've continued to give some check rides with caution. But I still have a lot of people coming for and signing up for aerobatics. So starting next week, I should have some uh, spin and aerobatics students. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. So. We don't have to get in the cockpit and wear a mask or anything. <laughs> I, I'd need a six sack if I took aerobatics. <laughs> I have those. <laughs> I'm sure. I got you covered. Well, I know you want to talk a little bit tonight about uh, some of the uh, some of the topics that you presented, including at my old alma mater, AOPA, in seminars. Uh, so why don't you go ahead? And the floor is yours as our national award winner. All right, well, thank you so much. I think we'll go ahead a slide or two. And actually, if you could pause at this one just for a moment, I wanna mention that this is a really special photo for me because the same son that I had right before I signed up for flying lessons, uh, he was the one who introduced me at my induction ceremony in the, at the Tennessee Aviation Hall of Fame. So that's a photo of Jack, uh, my older son, um, awarding me that or introducing me there. So that's a special photo. But, Fantastic. Right. Thank you. All right. So uh, I chose a topic that is uh, fascinating to me from an aerodynamics standpoint and a safety standpoint. And I chose to highlight uh, weight turbulence and offer hopefully some, some pointers for folks. This is based on an article that I did about a year and a half ago in uh, Pilot Magazine. It's the December 2018 issue. And I'm also grateful that uh, just a few months later in March of 2019, Tom Haynes chose to amplify my message from the article in his column. So I'd invite you to both read my article and, and his uh, column as well on that. All right. So if I'm going to start off by talking about lift because we can't talk about what generates uh, wingtip vortices without understanding lift to begin with. So I like this smoke tunnel video because it shows the extent to which the flow across the top of the wings is accelerated compared to the bottom. And that happens because the wing is, say, at a positive angle of attack uh, and or it has a camber on it. 
and I love this video too because it shows you just how much that acceleration uh, is present and it completely debunks the equal transit theory that says if you have two molecules that start at the beginning of the airfoil that they'll meet again at the end and you'll see that those two air molecules will never meet again and it was Bernoulli who uh, noticed an association between uh, an acceleration or a, a, a higher velocity flow and a lower pressure environment. So you have higher velocity and a lower pressure environment upstairs, a higher pressure environment downstairs, so you get a net force in the upward direction. So what causes induced drag is the fact that you have that differential uh, pressure environment downstairs versus upstairs. And you'll see this uh, still from Alexander Lipish's smoke tunnel videos from the 1950s. This wing is either was basically symmetrical and not at a, it's basically at a zero angle of attack. So there is no pressure differential. But when there is a pressure differential, you'll see in the right-hand panel that that higher pressure air downstairs is seeking that lower pressure environment upstairs. And that's the uh, generation of wingtip vortices that can cause problems for other aircraft that are operating nearby. Basically, think about induced drag as an inefficiency. It's the inefficiency because our wings come to an end and some of that higher pressure air is escaping to the lower pressure environment. So it's a problem for us flying in that it's uh, generating more drag and it's a problem for other aircraft as well. So in the next video, you'll see that from the side, you'll see the vortices. And what happens is as the angle of attack of the wing increases, you'll see those vortices now become stronger. So when you have that higher angle of attack, you have a higher differential in pressure and you get stronger vortices. So advisory circular 9023G does offer some very helpful advice about wingtip vortices. Unfortunately, it also uh, offers some advice, some advice that's uh, not particularly helpful. In particular, it says that vortices start when the aircraft, the generating aircraft leaves the ground and they continue until the aircraft touches down again. And that's actually not true at all. And I'll go ahead and, and uh, demonstrate that for you later. But there is some helpful advice. And one of that is that after ATC issues a caution wake turbulence warning, they generally provide no other information to the following aircraft. So you should know that. Once you hear that, you generally don't get any more information. Second of all, Pilots are responsible for their own wake turbulence avoidance after accepting any traffic information, instructions to follow another aircraft, or a visual approach clearance. So just know that once you hear those things and accept them, you are on your own for your own avoidance. Catherine, when do you, uh, in the training environment, mo most people are, are learning to fly like at, at airports that are not really having heavy aircraft. They're generally general aviation light aircraft at those airports. I learned to fly in your area in Sacramento, California. And oh, it was both a uh, both an air carrier airport and we had training in a 150 at the same time. So from day one, we had to learn it. But when do you introduce it when you're at a 
typical general aviation airport. So you mean in my own training? Well, in when I, you're training other people, and now when do you put that into the curriculum? So my training for the last, I guess, 17 years has been exclusively spins in aerobatics. And mm -hmm. when I teach aerobatics, it's really a safety course. Uh, it's fun that we do all of those air show maneuvers or a number of them, but it's really a, a course in safety. So we discuss wake turbulence, the aerodynamics of it, how to avoid it. And if for in some unfortunate way, if you get, end up getting into that kind of a situation, the kinds of things that uh, the kind of techniques that you're going to use to hopefully extract yourself from that situation. And I am going to touch on those in just a little bit. All right, so if we could go to the next one, that would be great. All right, so just a little bit about um, vortices. So vortices are strongest when the aircraft, first of all, uh, is it needs to generate more lift. So when the aircraft is heavy, when the aircraft is slow, as you saw earlier, when the angle of attack uh, goes up, the vortices become stronger. And the last one is that when the aircraft is clean. And I think that is the one that is the most elusive in terms of trying to understand why that's the case. If we could go back a slide, that would be great. So um, what happens is whenever you have a discontinuity in your plan form, that's an invitation for some of that higher pressure air downstairs to escape upstairs. So you'll see that this Cessna 152 that has its flaps down, the edges of the flaps are one area where the uh, high pressure air can come upstairs. So when you have an aircraft with its flaps down like this, the wings are gonna generate four main vortices. And now when the flaps are retracted, you'll see that those two inner vortices will go away and then the outer ones become stronger. So you're trading four weaker vortices for two stronger ones. And that's the reason why a clean aircraft is uh, the most dangerous in terms of uh, being behind one. So that you could put all of this together, I generated a video, and this is me taking off from the most beautiful airport in the world, which is in Suwannee, Tennessee. And you'll see that I have cones on the edges of the flaps, and I have 10 degrees of flaps on takeoff, and I also have cones at the ends of the wingtips. And I want you to first notice that the vortices start while the airplane is still on the ground. So you can see the vortices are starting, and the aircraft is still on the ground, and still on the ground. Okay, so now I've lifted off. And you'll see that when I retract the flaps, largely the inner vortices will go away. And the reason I qualify that with largely is that this was kind of a gusty day in Suwannee, you might notice because of the, the aileron deflection. Whenever I deflect the aileron, it has the same effect as extending a flap. So you're gonna get a bit of a vortex there when the uh, ailerons are deflected. But largely what happens is the middle ones go away and the outer ones become stronger. Now, you may not be uh, you know, 
quaking in your boots over my Cessna 152, but as any glider pilot knows who's ever boxed the wake, which you need to do for your check ride, who's ever boxed the wake of the uh, towing aircraft, you'll know that it does not take a very big aircraft to create some pretty monster vortices or some pretty big vortices. So I, I think care needs to be taken uh, with really any aircraft. It doesn't take a, a, a big, um, uh, you know, cargo aircraft to cause problems. Really small aircraft can still cause problems. And next up, is a video that I like to show at some of my safety presentations. Um, I guess some of these got a little bit reversed. Okay, so I'll just review. The vortices are strongest when the aircraft is uh, heavy, slow, and clean. All right, so here's a vo uh, video that I like to show at my safety presentations. Here's a Blackhawk. And you'll know that uh, helicopters create vortices just like aircraft do, fixed wing aircraft do. And I just want you to notice the time that goes by between this Blackhawk going along, and he's now out of the picture. And on the left side of the video, you'll see in a few moments, you'll see a Cirrus come in. And he gets caught in the wake turbulence of that Blackhawk and is cartwheeled. I like the video for two main reasons. First of all, it shows the effects of uh, wingtip vortices and how destructive they can be. And my second reason, and I, I like this even better, is that if you wait long enough, you'll see the door to the aircraft open and the pilot step out. So the, the pilot was fine with this, but unfortunately that's not always the case. So I think uh, wingtip vortices and uh, their destructive nature really should be a part in all of our training. All right, so uh, what I like to say about uh, a advisory circular 9023G, it offers some great advice, uh, but the mistake that I think it has or that may, it makes is that it has you trying to imagine where these vortices are in order to avoid them. But of course, the insidious part about it is you can't see them. So what I like to say is the your best bet is to just not try to imagine where they are. Wait two minutes at least between operations. And if the winds are especially calm, wait at least three minutes. If you feel pressure by ATC, we can always use the word unable. And what's the worst that can happen? Maybe you sit on the ground for a few more minutes, or maybe you take a circle pattern in the air before you land. But I think avoiding them by just giving them time to dissipate is the way to go. And uh, a stiff crosswind will will blow those vortices. So, so being aware of where the wind is, where the vortice is going to be, and then where it might be later uh, helps you make that decision too for time. I, I think that's right. Absolutely. Yeah. If you had a stiff crosswind and, and it's, uh, you know, blowing them off to one side or the other, then I might wait more like two minutes instead of the three. And um, I usually turn away from the way the vortices is rolling. Agreed. Yeah. All right. And then finally, in my course, uh, what I'll do is uh, we simulate 
being uh, inverted by weight turbulence. And what I, the advice that I usually give is, first of all, if you find yourself in such an unfortunate situation, first of all, push because that reduces your stall speed and it helps you gain control authority. Try to resist the rolling motion, but if you can't and you get inverted, continue the roll. Don't pull while you're upside down because then that's gonna accelerate your path to the ground. Push, roll to upright, um, and uh, yeah. So if, if you can't beat them, then join them. Well, thank you so much, Catherine, and it's obvious why you've been chosen for this prestigious award this year and in the past for other awards. And uh, thank you for taking a very uh, probably little known or talked about uh, part of aviation that's going to affect all of us at some time, and hopefully nothing like the Cirrus pilot or worse. I hope not, but thank you so much, Phil. I sure appreciate it. On these airplanes we've been talking about, they all have to be maintained. And our next award goes to the Aviation Maintenance Technician of the, of the Year, Dennis Walter. Dennis' uh, business is across the field from where I live, so I see him quite often and hear a lot of the things that he's going to be talking about. Dennis, uh, where did you start? Well, first of all, in, in school, let's say. How, what, what, how, where did you graduate and in what kind of... Uh, degree? Well, my degree is in industrial design. And um, as a young man, I was always just fascinated with airplanes and saved my shackles and bought a used moped in about 1960. And like any airplane lover, the first place I went was the airport. And uh, very shortly, I was washing airplanes to pay for flying lessons. And um, also it helped get myself get through college. And uh, there was an older gentleman there repairing uh, uh, owner flown airplanes. And uh, when I didn't have airplanes to wash, he paid me 35 cents an hour to uh, help him uh, back then do a lot of fabric work, but we did engine work and so on. So uh, I got a real good start from a really good mentor and I was blessed to have that. Um, tried two real jobs out of college uh, and um, taught in an A&P school and, and worked at a med school making medical training films and uh, decided I wanted to work for myself. So started AirMod in 1973. And since then, we and a good team of people and my wife have been uh, doing high quality, innovative interiors in, in primarily owner flown airplanes. And, um, but the, the main business uh, is renovating airplanes. So we do other work, instrument panels and aux tanks and aerodynamic things, lots of windows and a whole lot of work in passenger restraints. Our goal is to make uh, these airplanes safer and more comfortable, more durable, and um, easier to maintain, and uh, certainly aesthetically appealing. However, um, there's been a paradigm shift since I started this business and what the work scope is, uh, primarily because of aging airplane issues. None of the manufacturers thought we were gonna be flying these things 50, 60, and 70 years later, and, um, so a lot of support has to shift away from the factories to to other other means of, of maintaining these airplanes. And next slide. Um, pardon me? Next slide. We'll get the next slide up here to illustrate that. Okay. Um, and so uh, that the main cause of the shift is aging airplane issues. And um, when we do an interior, when anybody does an interior in an airplane, you strip it out uh, in a way that it's never been seen before. 
and so uh, since it left the factory. Normal maintenance procedures do not uh, become, are not this invasive into the, in, into the uh, cabin area in particular, where all the controls and the wiring and everything is. And so we're sort of like forensic pathologists. We get to see things that the maintenance techs don't see. And the uh, main elephant uh, in the hangar, if you will, is this corrosion issue. And it's everywhere in some of these airplanes. And if you were to just put an interior in one of these things and then, uh, you know, let it fend for itself for another 20 years or so, we'd probably end up losing more of them to, uh, to uh, this corrosion issue. But there's also other aging airplane issues and wiring and in systems. You can see a picture here we took of a hose. This was in about a 40-year-old airplane. And uh, the hose was all deteriorated. That hose only has an in-service life of no more than 10 years, it's been in there 50 years. And so you can't turn your back on those things. And, and um, so uh, those issues point us to the, the reality that the days of a fixed price and a delivery date are over with because you're gonna run into all these other issues. Um, we also have a lot of issues with uh, uh, wiring in these airplanes. Customers ask us to, hey, can you just paint my instrument panel? Seems like a pretty passive thing, but it's actually quite invasive because you have to disassemble the panel, remove the uh, avionics and the, and the radios and or the uh, instruments and such. And this is what we find in the picture up the upper left there is that often we find this mess of wiring. And um, in the process of cleaning that up and, and, uh, and such, we often remove a ton of wiring that was doing nothing. And another area that's really, I think, left uh, defense for itself, we get airplanes in with brand new glass avionics, you know, modern radios, but the circuit breaker panels have not been updated. And we find often that one circuit breaker is handling now two or three different circuits. It's placarded for the initial circuits, say, you know, panel lights, when it's actually supplying power to, to uh, you know, encoders and other things. And these older circuit breakers are not pullable. And I think to give a pilot uh, an opportunity to really manage an electrical problem, you need circuit breakers. So well, this, all this, this next slide, Dennis, I think illustrates that uh, with uh, yes, two good old and new, yeah. You can see the upper uh, slide there on the left are the old non-pullable circuit breakers, which are often uh, degraded and will uh, uh, open at a lower rating. And in the lower right, you see a panel with all pullable circuit breakers and better switching. And that means the pilot in flight can actually manage an electrical problem should, should that you know, be important. This is really though, the whole system of renovating and flying these old airplanes is a partnership between the owners, the techs, the FAA, the schools, and the suppliers. And, and so there's a lot an owner can do to, to really uh, have a better experience and a safer experience owning these, these now older airplanes. The most important thing, whether you're thinking about buying an airplane or you already have bought one, is to join a type club. Type clubs have, have taken over a lot of the maintenance service uh, uh, information and, and uh, responsibilities that the factories used to to do. I mean, the manuals for these airplanes were written 40 years ago with no uh, foresight for the, for the aging airplane issues. Type clubs uh, archive a lot of this information and, and thanks to their, their technical support staff, you know, they can help you source a good mechanic. They can help you find a good uh, person to do a pre-purchase inspection. And it's important to realize that 
um, particularly for new owners, um, just because we have licenses to work on these airplanes and we require maintenance log entries and so on, unlike we do for cars, doesn't mean that you're necessarily getting uh, uh, better maintenance because of all this uh, federal scrutiny. Um, so the other thing too is under the guides of preventative maintenance, the FAA has put together an approved uh, list of things that you can do to maintain your own airplane and on an airplane like a 172 or a Cherokee, it's a tremendous amount of the work that's required to keep that airplane airworthy. And um, uh, they've, they've done a lot to um, uh, help us with this. I think one important thing is, is for every owner to buy a copy of AC4313. Even though you're not going to be at the maintenance tech and get that deeply involved, even if you're, you're not even going to pick up a tool, I think using this document and reading it, this is the manual that the FAA's written to show us techs how to correctly make repairs and use the correct hardware and you know deal with electrical problems. But as an owner, just having gone through this book, you'll know the quality of your maintenance because you'll be able to tell because of your background that this book will will give you in in um, uh, you know maintaining these airplanes. I think now the, the FAA can do a lot to help us here too. And they have in recent, in the past 10 years, made great strides in particularly getting parts certified uh, aftermarket parts under part, part 23. I think they're just at the beginning of this process in relation to its, the need for these parts. The manufacturers are, are either charging outrageous prices for these parts or uh, they're not making them together. They're forcing maintenance techs to go to salvage yards and buy used parts. And so I think it's important for these FISDOs to also, um, uh, as well as get parts, help us get parts certified, but to, to uh, have all FISDOs do field approvals. Um, we've used field approvals over the years for countless safety enhancing uh, modifications we've done to these airplanes uh, that we wouldn't be able to do with, without this issue, uh, with, without this ability with the FAA. However, there are some FISDO offices that won't do them. So I think the FAA needs to standardize the availability of these and the process that you have to go through to get them. So, so, so it's, it's an equal playing field for all of us to, to, to get this work done. I also think it's important for the FAA to promote more hands-on training programs for preventative maintenance programs where uh, we did this for years when I was based down at Lunkin where we would pick one airport for a winter and for 10 weeks in that winter period when no one's flying anyway, we would fly there myself and a couple other techs in my 172 and we'd train airplane owners how to properly change tires and make electrical repairs and minor sheet metal repairs per the, the guidance of AC 4313 that they can legally do on their airplane and log into the log books and, 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 how, and how to do that. I think also the maintenance techs can do a lot to uh, to uh, uh, make airplane ownership uh, a viable uh, you know entity for for a lot of, of uh, you know owners. Uh, I think the, you want to try to find a, a, a maintenance tech who is interested in assisting you in in uh, maintaining your airplane. Um, encourage owners uh, mechanics to do more uh, owner assisted annuals. That's a great opportunity for a, a pilot to understand his airplane. That could, could uh, 
you know, create great benefits should uh, a need arise in flight. And um, uh, I think it's important too for um, pass for these mechanics to do more to pass their knowledge on uh, to the next generation. Um, I think they can archive their, their knowledge. So they see a certain problem, maybe come up three or four times, make sure that information gets to a type club. Um, I think it's important that they write articles. And I can tell you when I was first uh, asked to write some articles, my wife, Cynthia was with me and, uh, and she about fell out of her chair because she knows my writing skills were terrible. Fortunately, she paid attention in English class and it's thanks to her, those articles are legible. And I think a mechanic in the field can find somebody to help them with the articles. I was surprised to find out that magazines will help you write these articles. Don't take this stuff to the grave. So many older mechanics have passed away that I have the greatest respect and love for, and, and they're gone. And that all went with them. I think- uh, Dennis, uh, Dennis, when I was at AOPA, just a little sidebar here on the importance of these owner-assisted annual inspections, but- for the mechanics themselves to be uh, interested in that. My wife had a 172, learned to fly, got her license while I was working hard at AOPA and on the field. And I said, well, you know, you, you take care of this now. It has to have an annual. And the, the mechanical shop uh, whose uh, boss was named Bubba, I won't go into last names, but <laughs> Bubba. So you're going to get the idea here of what I'm talking about, sent a postcard out saying free, uh, tack check of your prop speed if you want to if you assist with the annual and i said this is a great thing go in there you got the daytime open uh learn how to take off the cover so she went to bubba and said phil sent me in said you want to to allow me to do an owner assisted annual and bubba turned to her and said if you don't assist we will cut the price of the annual <laughs> <laughs> so, so it takes these mechanics, a, they should be uh, trying to encourage the owner to get involved. Yeah, that's true. And I think a lot of mechanics figure out that um, by doing that, it actually makes their job easier because a lot of the, the uh, approved maintenance and mundane cleanup and stuff is done for them by these, by these owners and makes their job of inspecting these airplanes a lot easier. And um, I, but I think one thing that there's some pushback on is getting pre-purchase inspections. And I, I think mechanics should see this more as an opportunity to gain a good customer who cares enough to do this and uh, make their job easier also. But I think the mechanics, you know, should be forthright with owners and, uh, and, and tell them there's some pitfalls here. And the two biggest lies in general aviation, I think, are, are no damage history just because it's not in the logbook doesn't mean it, it's not there. And there's no corrosion. And um, uh, you see that in ads all the time. And um, uh, I don't believe that that's always a reliable statement. And this next image here will, will, uh, will prove that point. This is a, a airplane bought new by a, cu a customer, brought it to us for an interior, supposedly no damage history, about a 1962 beach airplane. And if you look uh, here, you can see the circled part or two arrows. That airplane had been badly slammed down on its belly twice. And the first repair was made. And then there was another uh, incident. And there was a second repair there. Both of them had loose rivets 
and um, actually non-aircraft rivets in places and hardware, but um, uh, but the, also some pretty severe cracking. And if you and there was nothing in the logbook that was as as it was advertised, it was a no damage history airplane. But the reality was, and we find this frequently when we disassemble these airplanes and look at them totally bare inside, we can see things that maintenance techs can't see on inspections. And to the right of there, you'll see a regiment of rivets that are part of the spar web. And there's an AD to, in to inspect those. It requires a dipenetrate checking uh, material. And there's always a residue of that. And that area is always very clean. That logbook had that inspection in there as having been done twice and it was not done. So um, the logbooks are only part of what you, you really look at. The airplane's the most important part. Well, here's another thing I think that's real important, uh, and that is what can these trade schools do? Um, I think it's fair to say that a lot of trade schools train to send mechanics primarily to the airlines, to the, to the manufacturing and, uh, sector and the corporate sector. And um, there are 180,000 light airplanes that need to be maintained out there. And it's a very stable uh, uh, lifestyle as, as, a, as a professional because we don't rely on one industry. And, you know, uh, so we draw from all economic segments in the country. And so far in, in my company, with, with very rare exception, we've never worried about having, having work to do. I think it's important for these these trade schools to include a strong general aviation uh, curriculum in their in their total package, and and um, I think it's also important to invite aircraft and power plant technicians to come into class and give them a lifestyle explanation of what it is like to work on these airplanes, how eclectic and interesting this work is, and how stable it is, and. Um, uh, because we need more more maintenance techs. We're, we're fighting to, to find them now. Um, then what can the product suppliers do? I think some companies like McFarland and, and uh, Wag Arrow and so on are doing a great job of certifying aftermarket parts. I often find that these parts are better engineered, more sturdily made than original factory parts and it substantially reduced parts uh, costs and they're on the shelf so i'd like to you know part see the part the faa partner with these these uh, um, uh, aftermarket manufacturers and keep this flow of parts coming because we need them and um, i also think they uh, the uh, uh, suppliers should jump on the bandwagon of what are we going to do about this corrosion and I think they could put kits together, maybe with instructions of, of where to look for it and how to mitigate it. And we'll supply you with all the, the power and hand tools and, and uh, personal protection uh, things you need because you're using some pretty aggressive chemicals to get rid of this stuff. I've included there a picture of zinc chromate, which is a, a great, uh, once you get everything cleaned up antiseptically, a great coating to prevent uh, uh, corrosion in the future. Well, I have some things that, that I think are really important. And um, one of them is, is uh, very heavy on my mind. And that is, I think one of the major reasons a lot of technicians don't want to go into general aviation uh, maintenance is it's difficult for them to find a stable place 
to have a work environment. These airports are controlled by state and local governments and the FAA, and very, very few of them allow you to own the ground on which you're going to invest in a building if you want to own a building. The normal deal is you get a 20, 30-year lease, and just about the time you're done paying off your bank loan for the building you put up, you have to give up the building to the, the county or remove it, or if you want to stay there, outbid anybody else to buy it. Now, what kind of a business model does, does that motivate pe people to want to come into these things? Um, the, the other thing, too, is um, we got to be forthright with the owners. Um, and anybody that will give you a fixed price and a fixed delivery for a radio installation, an engine overhaul, or installation, or an interior, or you name the, you know, the modification in a 40, 50-year-old airplane is not being forthright with you. And if they stick to that commitment, they're going to have to either ignore things they find or cut corners. So you can either pay now or pay later. And so um, the other thing is, and I think this is the most important opportunity you have when you renovate these airplanes, and that is the safety enhancements that you can install in these machines with better shoulder harnesses. We still get airplanes in our hangar. I'd say one out of four don't even have a fire extinguisher in them. And um, uh, there's a lot of things that can be done with ventilation, ergonomics and seats to reduce fatigue and sound levels in airplanes to reduce fatigue and instrument lighting and, and logical layouts of instrument panels and so on that make these airplanes safer. And just remember this, you can't write the check on the way down. So here's your chance to really uh, up, up your uh, stage, uh, point of view from uh, the standpoint of safety. So uh, I want to uh, thank everybody for this. This has been a real honor for me to receive this. I know a lot of uh, 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 folks uh, uh, got behind the, this award for me. And so I just want to thank everyone and uh, stay healthy. Well, Dennis, thank you very much, and I know how dedicated you are to going beyond what the normal mechanic will do or even will look at because of the nature of your work as you uh, undoing floorboards and areas that haven't been looked at at a plane in sometimes 30 to 40 years. <coughs> Our award winner is with the FAA, now that you've heard Dennis's ideas of what the FAA can do, but is with the FAA as a safety team representative of the year. And Gary uh, Rosé, uh, give us a little bit about your background. Well, I entered aviation when I joined the Air Force years ago. And after a career in the Air Force as a jet engine mechanic, I retired from the Air Force and uh, took a position at Pratt & Whitney where I'm still at. And uh, I pulled a brief period of time as an instructor while I was in the Air Force for the Community College of the Air Force. And then I've been an adjunct instructor for the Pratt & Whitney Customer Training Center for the last 10 years or so. I'm currently a fast team rep for the Atlanta FISDO. And you're uh, also a, a pretty, well, it says right here on the slide, a master crew chief in the balloon area. Yeah, I was actually at a EAA chapter meeting here in, at my local airport, and my good friend now, uh, Joel Jones, showed up at the airport and brought a balloon out at one of our burger burns. He was actually looking for crew, 
So he did a tethered flight out on the airport field. And I went up for my first ride in a balloon, went up on a tethered flight. And I said, I'd really like to try this untethered. So then he called me up in a couple of weeks. I took an untethered flight and I was hooked on low and slow after that. So wow. I, I immersed myself in, in ballooning and became uh, his crew chief, <clears throat> eventually earned uh, master crew chief designation from the Balloon Federation of America. And then I was fortunate to be selected in 2019 as the uh, Balloon Federation of America National uh, Crew Member of the Year. Well, the next slide gives us a good idea of the many things you do beyond just your regular full-time job with many of the organizations out there. Yes, I really enjoy volunteering. I found that participation in my aviation community, it means a lot more to me than most things because it's getting a lot, getting to know the people and dealing with the people in your aviation community that's really important. You know, we all enjoy flying, but getting together with your peers and discussing aviation, talking about airplanes and having a good time, that's where it's at. Well, Catherine picked one topic and, and tossed a lot about wake turbulence, which is real important. And you've picked a topic, which I think is very good, improving defenses. Yeah, I, I was mulling over what to talk about in this presentation. And, you know, uh, Dennis and Catherine are a hard group to follow. So <laughs> uh, I decided that I would look at defenses in aviation uh, or barriers between me in an accident and all of us in an accident. So first, before we get started on my little presentation here, there's a few terms that we really need to understand. So the first one is a hazard. A hazard is a condition, an event, an object, or a circumstance that may lead to an accident. Might, might not, but it could lead to an accident. If you look closely at the photo there of the envelope on the balloon, you can see that a pine tree, you can see a little piece of it sticking out there. A pine tree is a hazard to flying low and slow, like I mentioned. The next thing is barriers. Barriers are the defenses that we put up between us and that accident. So that's important. And I'm going to talk about that throughout my presentation of putting more barriers between us and an accident. So we're going to look at two types of failures. You have an active failure. That's what the person does. That's me when I messed up. I thought I could get between two pine trees and they were a little tighter than I thought. My skill wasn't as good as it should have been. So the pine tree got in the way. So that's an active failure. It can be in a mistake <clears throat> or it can be an outright violation. We've all seen the individuals at the airport that their edge is a little different than the rest and they push the minimum requirements. And then the latent failure. A latent failure is something that's been in place in the system from the beginning. So if I received inadequate training on one particular thing during my flight training and that stuck with me through the years, it may never end up being or leading to an accident, but it's there lurking in the background. So Dr. James Reason tried to explain this a few years ago. So he came up with a model called the Swiss cheese model. And he said, okay, here's our individual defenses. 
Uh, for example, each level of pilot certification has some requirements. You have to have aeronautical knowledge, you have to have flight proficiency, and you have to have some aeronautical experience in order to get the certificate. That would be a defense between you and an accident. You know, gone are the days when the Wright brothers were trying to teach themselves to fly. But even though we receive that experience and that training and that knowledge, there's people involved. <clears throat> Humans are prone to error, so we make mistakes. All instructors are not perfect, and the students are not perfect. So when you look at each one of those barriers, the barriers have holes in them, and they, they tend to represent the humans that were involved, the humans that are prone to error. The only way for us to have an accident is for all of those holes to line up at the same time. That's why my error in my checklist that's been there for 10 years or the inadequate training I got on one particular maneuver during flight training doesn't result in an accident because I have other barriers in place to prevent me from hitting the ground, if that makes sense to you. And these holes are made up of both the latent failures and the active failures. My mistakes, my violations, and then all those things back in my history where I didn't learn the lesson exactly the way I should. So what I'm going to attempt to do here is add a few tools to your safety toolbox. So I came up with five ideas to add to your safety toolbox. And remember, the more barriers that you put between you and the accident, the less likely you are to have an accident. In fact, the more barriers you put up, <clears throat> you're going to rule out having any single point of failure. We've all heard when the NTSB or the FAA puts out a report, they say there was no single one smoking gun, no one thing that went wrong. So one barrier that failed didn't lead to the accident. It took those multiple failures of barriers in order for it to do it. So I, I want to present these five barriers that I say you can add to your safety toolbox. So perfect practice, like Dennis mentioned, I'm gonna expand on a little bit more, type clubs, your aviation community, personal minimums, and then the WINGS program itself. <clears throat> so the first one, perfect practice. Vince Lombardi was credited with this quote years ago saying, practice doesn't make perfect, only perfect practice makes perfect. So if you look at the flight instructor's handbook, the flight instructor's handbook says the instructor should explain to the student the only way to develop a skill is through practice. So I ask, what did Vince mean by practice, perfect practice makes perfect? <clears throat> So I looked it up in the Aviation Instructor's Handbook, and it actually says that perfect practice is deliberate practice. It's where you set out to correct one thing. So let's say you haven't done any crosswind landings for a while, or you haven't done short airfield operations. Pick that one thing, go get with your local instructor, and start working on that item. Uh, later on in the presentation, I'm going to talk about establishing personal minimums. That's a perfect place to start with picking an item for deliberate practice. Like Vince said, perfect practice makes perfect. 
The next item, which thank you, Dennis, for the introduction to this, <clears throat> is type clubs. The type club coalition was started to join organizations together to improve the safety of general aviation. And I just picked, this is not all inclusive. There's a number of type clubs. I just put the slide together and threw some of the logos that I could locate real easy. But they have a common objective to improve aviation safety. And they share resources. They share training programs. They share transition programs, syllabi, and ground uh, training programs. So any one of these type clubs, you go to their website, there's a, a vast amount of information in there. And it's not just for the pilots. As Ted, I mean, as uh, Dennis mentioned earlier, they have maintenance information on it, enthusiast information, pilot information. In fact, on NAFI Live, they have on the third Wednesday of each month, they have Mentor Live where they do a presentation for flight instructors. This past March, uh, Tom Turner did a presentation. He's the executive director for uh, the American Bonanza Society, uh, their safety arm. And he gave a presentation on how important it is for a flight instructor to participate in flight uh, clubs for the aircraft that they provide instruction in. Because it's real important for them to train their students how to properly operate it. And one of the things that he stressed in his presentation is that these type clubs have decades of knowledge that the uh, pilots and maintainers have shared for that particular aircraft. So there's a wealth of knowledge out there. <clears throat> if you get a chance, check out the May issue of Sport Aviation uh, Magazine. Uh, Sam Olson did a wonderful uh, piece in there about type clubs, stating that this is probably one of the most important things an aircraft owner or operator can do is join a type club for the specific aircraft that they operate or um, own. The next thing would be aviation communities. <clears throat> I mentioned before that I, I enjoy volunteering in the community because I enjoy dealing with the people. We all enjoy flying, but there's something special about an aviation community. There's organizations, there's volunteer opportunities on your airport, there's committees that you can serve on and even consider being a fast team representative. My local chapter, for example, it's a small chapter by EA standards, yet we have a mixture of pilots, mechanics, enthusiasts, all age groups, college professors, and even world-class aerobatic uh, competition pilots. So there's lots of opportunities for you to be involved in your aviation community, a lot of resources. <clears throat> Next, develop personal minimums. And you can Google personal minimums, uh, AOPA, EAA, a number of the alphabet organizations come up with uh, a sheet, a worksheet on how you can develop your personal minimums. I pulled this one out, well, at least the first six steps, I pulled them out of the FA handbook on risk management. So review min weather minimums. It's a good place to start. Remember that's the federal regulation minimum safe standards for operation. So you start with your minimum requirements, then you look at your experience and knowledge um, and your comfort levels. 
How well have you done recently? I mean, have you done short field landings? Have you done crosswind landings? Consider other conditions. Have you only been flying on the sunny Saturdays for the last few months and haven't experienced less than perfect uh, weather conditions? So once you get all this information, <clears throat> you assemble it together and you evaluate it. So then you have a personal minimums checklist. Now you can adjust to the specific conditions. If it's not that pristine day when you go out to fly, <clears throat> you can change your flight levels a little bit. Change your personal minimums and make them a little bit more stricter for that particular condition. But whatever you do, you don't want to modify them in the other direction and lower your ceilings and stuff like that. <coughs> Stick to your plan once you develop those personal minimums. And from the ballooning community, I'll share another one with you, is share your plan with your crew. And uh, if you're a private flyer, share it with your friends at the airport, share it with your family members. Because if you develop personal uh, minimums, a lot of times you'll be encouraged, you'll encourage yourself to break your own personal minimums. So it's important that your peers, your family, your crew, if you're on a balloon, uh, a balloon operator, they know what your personal minimums are so they can help you. And then the last thing is participation in the WINGS program. I want to remind everybody that WINGS is a pilot proficiency program, not an award program. There's a number of opportunities in our community to uh, participate in the WINGS program. The EAA, the AOPA, and a number of other groups if you please advance the slide there. There's a number of opportunities that you have in the community to uh, receive WINGS credit, including tonight's broadcast. Um, you can see there, I put an example of the AOPA in-person uh, training as well as, as the online training. The EAA's v VMC and IMC clubs take real-world scenarios and get pilots to communicate with each other. You sit around and discuss and try to improve your knowledge of aviation. And then I mentioned before the uh, mentor live presentations that they do. So in closing, the five tips that I want to share with you tonight with improving your defenses is perfect practice makes perfect. Join a type club for the aircraft that you own or operate. Get involved in your aviation community. Develop your personal minimums checklist and participate in the WINGS program. Well, thank you very much, Gary. As our 2020 National FAA Safety Team Representative of the Year. And let me remind you again that our other winners tonight are Catherine Cavanero, Certificated Flight Instructor of the Year, Dennis Walter, Aviation Maintenance Technician of the Year. All three of you national winners, thank you so much for being with us tonight, and congratulations to all of you for these very special awards. And with EAA's AirVenture being canceled this year, we'll be seeking another major aviation event to be held later in the year to give you the award in person. So for the rest of tonight, perhaps you are interested in how you can participate in these general aviation awards. Maybe be here next year. One thing you can do is nominate a deserving person. Each year, nominations are open to CFIs, 
fast team reps, and maintenance technicians. You know, it takes people just like you and I to nominate someone and assist them with the application package. It's quite an extensive ordeal, as these three winners would tell you, to make it all the way to the national awards. It takes a lot of work and effort to put in the application package, so you could possibly help someone with that task. You can also volunteer for the GA Award, since it's run by volunteers and dedicated folks like you watching to make sure excellence in general aviation is recognized and rewarded as our program has demonstrated tonight. And then you can contribute. Funding is of course necessary, and it can be through sponsorship or direct donations. Monies received as gifts go directly to the honorees that you've seen tonight and in succeeding years. Sponsorship is available as well. There's a website that is in the middle bullet if you are interested in sponsorship or donations. You can also visit the website to either sponsor or donate. And also a special thank you tonight to John Typen for the St. Louis area. John himself is a two-time national honoree of GA awards and owns aeronautical proficiency training. It's John who tonight is producing this broadcast and sending it out worldwide for aviation enthusiasts to join. I would call your attention to the General Aviation Award 2020 sponsors who have contributed to making this event possible. Once again, I want to remind you that you can obtain WINGS credit or AMT credit for attending this seminar tonight. When the seminar ends, on the right side of your screen, you'll see a bullet point that states Earn WINGS credit or AMT credit. And that will link you to the FAAsafety.gov website. There you can see a review, take a mastery quiz of a few questions of things covered by our wing winners tonight. You'll then be awarded WINGS credit. Supplement that with a flight instruction from a CFI, and you'll be eligible for earning a phase of WINGS and winning a sweepstakes prize in the program. Thanks very much for joining us again for GA Awards Live. I'm Phil Boyer, and it's been my honor and pleasure to introduce you, the three 2020 National Award winners. Thanks so much for joining us and for participating in the FAA WINGS programs.